0: one of the appellees
1: that's correct yeah. and
0: um, we didn't think it affected whether this argument should go forward right. but if there's if it is likely to have in any way an impact on the disposition or otherwise that we should be aware of you don't have to tell us today but you might think about it and you can give us a one or both can give us a 28 j letter or what just explaining what you think
1: okay
0: if there is a a collateral, so to speak, effect on what may or may not happen.
1: Okay, and and just to address that briefly, Your Honor, I I don't believe that there is. I think that in in this case, I also filed a notice of death for another defendant, um, and the case ended up being dismissed because, as you know, nineteen eighty three claims are specific to the defendant. Um, and so it's our position that if if there's been a death, which there has been as to uh, defendant Guzzi, that he should be dismissed from this action, as was Charlene Deacon. That was the other uh, defendant that we filed a notice of death for. Um, but good morning, may it please the court. Uh, my name is Abby Duncan. I represent the appellants in this litigation. Uh, the lower court's decision in this case is contrary to well-established pleading Principles as outlined by the Supreme Court in Twombly and Iqbal, as well as well-established qualified immunity principles, in denying the appellant's motion to dismiss, the lower court aired in three main ways. The first was by denying qualified immunity to our individual defendants, where the complaint failed to allege direct participation and in individual involvement in the plaintiff's prolonged detention. Uh, Second, it erred in denying the individual's qualified immunity where it was not clearly established that plaintiff's prolonged detention was a violation of the Fourth Amendment. Um, And it erred in denying individual defense qualified immunity where it was not clearly established um, that the defendant's conduct as it relates to investigating plaintiff's case and informing the plaintiff of his holdover uh, was a violation of his substantive due process rights. The first point we have is that the the appellant fails to allege each defendant's individual involvement. Um, As you know, and as we heard from a, a prior argument, Uh, Liability for damages for a federal constitutional tort is personal. Each defendant's conduct must be individually um, and independently assessed. To establish personal liability of supervisory defendants, which is what we have in this case, the complaint must allege specific facts of personal involvement or direct responsibility for a deprivation of a plaintiff's constitutional rights. Otherwise, those defendants are entitled to qualified immunity. Here the plaintiff makes claims against supervisory defendants. Um, The two defendants now at issue is um, former commissioner Dale Glass, commissioner over all corrections, and then the superintendent of the specific jail where plaintiff was housed, uh, the medium security institution. Plaintiff alleges in lump sum that defendants generally, although not specifying which one, knew or should have known the plaintiff was incarcerated despite his charges being uh, dismissed. Counsel, there's only
2: two defendants. Don't we infer from the pleadings that both of them knew the allegations pertain to each of them?
1: Well, even even if you don't parse it out as to which one it pertains to, and as you've mentioned pertain them to both of them, um, still the language of that they knew or should have known is conclusory. Um, And we see that in uh, Iqbal. Iqbal is um, really the main case on this point. In Iqbal, the plaintiff alleged that high-ranking officials in the government knew, had a policy, and were responsible for promulgating this policy uh, to institute harsher conditions of confinement of certain um, Incarcerated individuals based on religion, race, and/or uh, national origin.
2: Right, but but and, unlike in Scott versus Baldwin, here the Jones has alleged that the public defender uh, informed them that people were being incarcerated past their release dates.
1: So there is there is that allegation, um, but it doesn't allege at what point that occurs. Um, it's it's also. Um, it doesn't allege at what point that occurs, and so we don't know whether after this case was filed and after a plaintiff was released, a public defender went to them and told them this. Um, and that that's a really crucial point. How they gained this knowledge um, through what means um, is is critical to making it to pushing it over the edge from being conceivable liability to plausible liability under Twombly and Iqbal. Um, So in Iqbal, the court found that despite there being allegations of knowing um, and purposeful actions, uh, because there were no specific facts to show or even intimate um, what the officials did to promulgate that policy, um, the court found that those allegations were conclusory and not worthy of being taken as true. They were merely naked assertions devoid of further factual enhancement, and that's what we have in this case. On well, our Well, second- doesn't it seem yes, as
3: though, like, there's got to be the absence of a policy that's the problem here, right? And so the policy is the absence of a policy because every single person involved in this is employed by the city of St. Louis, whether it's the public defender, whether it's the people that manage the jail, whether it's the clerk of court. And nobody's ever established a policy as to who is supposed to give notice to the jailer that the charges have been dismissed. And this isn't some guy who sat there for three days. This is a person who sat there for months. And so whether it's adequately pled or not, and I get where well, that might be a problem on these particular pleadings, right? And and so it may not be, be sufficient to satisfy Iqbal and Qumli. Uh But in the end, the you know, um, Shouldn't we, as a court, and this is not the first case where St. Louis has had somebody sit there for weeks without being released when the charges were dismissed? Shouldn't we, as a court, say, yeah, from here on going forward, the absence of a policy directing somebody to inform the jailer that the charges have been dismissed is a constitutional violation? Because, pretty clearly, you can't just hold somebody, you know, for months without charges. And no access to a magistrate to even bring a habeas claim.
1: Judge Erickson, I think that those are two, what we're alleging in this case is very different from, from um, I guess, your question. Um, whether or not there should be a policy, I think, is a separate question from whether they have sufficiently pled, um, whether there's a Are we concluded from
3: saying that there ought to be a policy requiring somebody to... Uh, to the placing the burden that, that, that not not that there ought to be, that the Constitution requires the existence of a policy uh, inform uh, placing on somebody the duty to inform the jailer that the charges have been dismissed.
1: I think at this stage it would be premature to issue an affirmative duty. Um, Why do you think that? I
3: mean, listen, this is not the first time it happens. How many people are going to be sitting in the St. Louis city and county jails for 6, eight, ten months before somebody wakes up and says there ought to be a rule? I mean, that's what I want to know. Because I'll tell you what, I am just horribly offended. by This happens once, it is offensive. But this happens multiple times and nobody cares enough? That is a problem, and it may not be a decisional point in this case, but you ought to go back to whoever employs you and tell them, you know what, there needs to be a policy.
1: I appreciate that, Judge Erickson, Um, and I will certainly take that into account, and many of those things that you've said have, have likely already been done. Uh, In this case. But nevertheless, it doesn't change the fact that the appellee, the plaintiff in this case, has an obligation and a duty to allege facts sufficient enough to implicate the individual defendants in this matter, and they have not done so uh, beyond conclusory and naked assertions devoid of factual enhancement. The plaintiff's Fourth Amendment claims were not, this is our second point, the plaintiff's Fourth Amendment claims were not clearly established until Manel, which was decided in 2017, uh, long after the events at issue. Uh, the first inquiry into any 1983 suit, as you know, is to isolate the precise constitutional violation with which the defendant is charged. Um, here, def- the plaintiff brings a Fourth Amendment claim against defendants for unlawful seizure. In uh, Manuel, the Supreme Court uh, resolved a circuit split. Uh, in that case, the Seventh Circuit had ruled that uh, the claims governing uh, an unlawful uh, pretrial detention, or Fourth Amendment claims, governed a claim for unlawful Uh, pre-trial detention. I
2: appreciate that you brought up Manuel. Why wouldn't we follow the United States Supreme Court guidance on on this point?
1: Right. Well, well, you do. You follow the Supreme Court guidance. But following the Supreme Court guidance means that the Fourth Amendment violation was not established at the time of these incidents. So these incidents occurred in 2013 and 2014. Are you
2: just talking about labels for the same violation?
1: No. We're not. Um, we're talking about two distinct amendments um, that require um, their own analysis. And in Molina, um, even if that
2: was it, true, isn't it obvious that you can't keep someone imprisoned past their release date? Wouldn't this be a perfect case to apply that rule? That this is an obvious
1: case. Well, it's consistently throughout qualified. Well, what
2: reasonable officer would not know? That you can't imprison someone for eight months past their release date. All
1: right. I, when we look to to qualified immunity, and I, I, your point is well taken that that this idea in the Eighth Circuit and beyond has percolated that it is unlawful, and it's unlawful specifically under the Fourteenth Amendment. But the 1983 qualified immunity analysis requires us to pinpoint the specific constitutional violation at issue, and we see that in Molina. Um, in Molina, there was a sorry. Did you have a question? Okay. Um, In Molina, um, certain conduct, um, specifically recording an observation of police conduct, was uh, firmly established under the Fourth Amendment, but not under the First Amendment, under which the plaintiff brought their case, even though it's the same action. Um, And in that case, this court uh, ruled that the First Amendment was not clearly established that his rights under the First Amendment were not clearly established, and therefore they granted qualified immunity. Um, and here similarly, because the plaintiff's rights were not clearly established under the Fourth Amendment, because of Manuel's deciding in 2017, uh, they have they failed to make out that Fourth Amendment claim. But um, if both if both claims.
0: Don't you? You have to win both, don't you? I mean, you just just knocking out the Fourth Amendment doesn't doesn't mean we reverse.
1: I'm sorry, Judge Loughman.
0: Well, if it was clearly established that what they did violated the Fourteenth Amendment,
1: mm-hmm.
0: so what? Why why are we messing around with this Fourth Amendment distinction?
1: Right, because. They bring the argument under the 4th and the 14th Amendment. We know that the 14th Amendment is no longer applicable to a case like this under Manuel. But when we get to the 4th Amendment analysis, which we must now use under Manuel, it is no longer clearly established than in this case. Because this case happened in 2013 and 14, and Manuel was decided in 17. Did Manuel
0: subtract the 14th Amendment or just include on its facts the 4th?
1: It concluded that instead of analyzing these kinds of claims for pretrial um, detainees under the 14th amendment that it should be analyzed under the fourth amendment
2: I think we also need to look at what the court actually said in that case the Supreme Court said we just close a quote decided four decades ago that a claim challenging pretrial detention fell within the scope of the fourth amendment end quote so why wasn't it clearly established as the Supreme Court said four decades ago.
1: Right. Um, The Supreme Court does state that in the opinion, um, but I would argue that because of the existence of a circuit split, it was not clearly established. We have circuits in the eighth, we have cases in the eighth circuit that analyze it strictly under the 14th Amendment and rejected the Fourth Amendment analysis. true. We still have the Supreme Court. But that wasn't that that phrase that she said. um, I think it was uh, Justice Kagan that wrote the opinion. uh, Was not written until 2017, and so I would argue that there was a. a, It it was saying what
0: anybody could have figured out from four decades of of decisions. I mean, the the pre-incarceration or pre-custody distinction. Yes, it's often important, but I don't see its importance here in terms of clearly established or the merits.
1: Um, And again, I would just emphasize what I've already said, which is that in in the uh, 1983 cases, uh, the first step is to pinpoint the constitutional violation at issue. Um, On our third point, we argue that there's no established law that defendants had a duty to investigate plaintiff's prolonged detention or inform the plaintiff of his prolonged detention. Um, And for that, we look to support for Davis v. Hall, where the court, uh, this court, said that whatever haziness obscures the exact contours of a duty to investigate burns off once the authorities know that they have no basis for detention. Therefore, um, stating that a supervisory employee has to have actual knowledge, and it acknowledges kind of the haziness of this area of corrections officers or supervisory employees to investigate um, claims. And then also as to a duty to inform, um, this seems to be a novel argument that they've advanced in the complaint. Um, I don't find any uh, support for the idea that defendants had a duty after a plaintiff was released to inform him that he was held over uh, longer than he was, and they've, they've pointed to no support for that. Um, and it, it's for all these reasons that we ask that the district court be reversed, and I'll reserve the rest of my time. Thank you.
4: Mr. Gross, may it please the court, uh, your honors. Um, I do want to answer some of the questions that came up uh, already. So, so Judge uh, Judge Graz, um you were talking about uh, both of the defendants uh, here. Uh, there are only two that are remaining. Uh, the allegations in the complaint at this point, we are. Uh, um, as Judge Erickson noted earlier, we're in a different world, and we're not here on summary judgment. This is here on a motion to dismiss. That uh, we've received an order from the trial court that was similar to several other orders from different trial courts that looked at very similar evidence and their well, similar allegations in their cases as well, and allowed those to proceed as well. The main case that was used there was Davis versus Hall. So Davis versus Hall has been used as a a guidepost. For these different cases, because it is so close on point, the the issue with manual here in terms of the circuit split and everything else. First, I don't I don't think that that argument holds water for the very reasons that have been brought up by this court already. The conduct was clearly illegal, detaining somebody for eight months without any charges against them whatsoever, and maintaining that detention over that time period is not allowed under the 4th Amendment or really under the 14th Amendment or any other part of the Constitution of the United States of America. In Manuel, however, that case specifically dealt with the situation in Illinois where if somebody had to allege, they they had some conversion process, which obviously didn't make sense and Justice Kagan uh, agreed, but there was some conversion process that the 7th Circuit held that once you were the detention process, you were arrested and now we're beginning the legal process and everything else, your Fourth Amendment claim has been converted into a Fourteenth Amendment Substantive Due Process Claim. And the reason that was so important was because in Illinois, there was another procedure that you had to go through, that you were entitled to certain other remedies, and that you would have to go through that process. So that's why this whole issue was so important for that case, but importantly for this case, Manual dealt with pre-trial detention. Here, Michael Jones was held for a total of eleven months. Three of those months were pursuant to charges; they were pre-trial. Those charges were dismissed. For the, uh, he didn't sue for any of the, any claims under the the three months. Uh, this malicious prosecution version of of the federal claim. He was suing specifically for the eight month period when, when he was held when was without
0: was charges. Judge
4: uh, Iqbal was decided uh, 2000 I'm sorry I don't have that right off the top of my head your honor yeah we,
0: we are uh, in 2009 2000 2009. 2009 right way after Lewis v Hall yes so Lewis v Hall gives us no no help on on how you how you on what's adequate pleading under ICBOL.
4: So, so I'm, I'm assuming you're Davis v. Hall, or correct? Davis- yes, Davis v. Hall, um, which is uh, from 2004. So not, not, I mean, I guess, yes, certainly before. There are, however, other cases that show the sufficiency of the pleadings uh, here specifically. Uh, number one, uh, in, in several cases, do still look uh, at the Fourth Amendment even after? I don't care the, about
0: the Fourth or the Fourteenth. I care about the failure to put anyone on notice of what this claim is about because it's so generally alleged. Well,
4: your Honor I don't think it is F- that
0: facts that are were within you and your clients ready access that are not alleged? Well I, I As don't believe to that... facts that are that, that can't be alleged without discovery because they're solely within the defendant's possession.
4: Well, well, Your Honor, I, I, I would disagree to, to a significant uh, part of that, um, and this kind of goes to the early argument that you all heard today. Uh, the uh, uh, Judge Erickson's hypothetical: if, if this person had uh, been so, for example, was, had lost consciousness during this meeting, I, 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 I can get
0: quick. I can get quickly to what's
4: on my mind. Yeah, I, I mean, your, your client
0: was represented in this case by the public defender.
4: Yeah, yes, Your Honor. Now,
0: I would think it would take no more than a half-hour interview with the public defender to determine when did you learn of this, who did you tell, what do you know about what happened. That should have been found out and alleged, in my view, to sort out the problems with with going forward.
4: Yeah, I, I, uh, Your Honor, and and like I mentioned, there was some other... In, In the
0: absence of that, frankly, is my reason I'm very inclined to revert
4: reverse uh, I mean your honor so so there has been in previous litigation that 's related to this there has been depositions of the public defender's office and some of those that did go to discovery um, the no, reco-
0: i don 't care about depositions and discovery i 'm talking about the plaintiff's lawyer who's looking to file this complaint mm-hmm. in a manner that satisfies iqbal 's plausible pleading requirements and qualified immunity particularization requirements would have should have and must have, frankly, sat down with the public defender and said, "Well, here's what my client has learned after the fact. Tell, tell us, tell me what happened contemporaneously."
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and Your and Honor, so, that
0: I'm assuming you learned that and you didn't plead it for a reason. Well, it, uh, I,
4: Your Honor, I, I just believe it was pled sufficiently. I, you, given I have the no alleg- idea who was the investigator. <laughs>
2: but, Counsel, maybe you could go through the, com- the complaint a little bit. They yeah, think, that's... The district court felt that uh, Glass and Carson adequately pled their uh, claims. but Maybe you could kind of go through and, and convince us that they pled enough facts uh, to plausibly show the direct involvement in the formation, implementation, and enforcement of the policy.
3: And and as you do that, maybe I just can't read the complaint, but in the complaint, I never saw where any of the defendants were identified as to what their position was, what their their authority was, what they specifically failed to do, and how that led to the defendant's or to the plaintiff's loss.
4: Yeah. Yes. Yes, Your Honor. And and, and to answer that question, uh, so the defendant's positions were alleged early on. That would be paragraphs three through six in the petition. So that would be early on in the Yeah,
3: I'm, but all, the, all you've said, all you've given me is titles. Correct, right? yes. And you haven't told me what their duties were. You know, I'm the superintendent. Well, that tells me, you know, that they're a management person, but it doesn't tell me what specific obligations that they had to the day-to-day uh, management of the jail. What were they supposed to know? When were they supposed to know it? What were they supposed to do? What was within their scope of authority? And I think post ball, we're supposed to plead those things. We're supposed to say, okay, Smith is the is, is the chief jailer. The chief jailer is responsible for the, prison, for the jail roll call. As the manager of the jail roll call, he has a duty to inspect the orders of the court as they come down. Uh, he failed to do so um, by a, a plaintiff. Uh, Mr. Jones was never informed of, uh, of the fact that his charges had been dismissed. He sat for eight months. You know, like that I would understand. But this is just sort of, he has this job, and then no one informed him. And we don't know who was supposed to and when they were and, and what their individual duties were.
4: Well, Your, Your Honor, I, I would point you back to the, uh, the complaint. Um, and that would be, so the responsibilities, and perhaps they weren't just ordered in the right way, and, and that could be a drafting uh, error, too, if it wasn't as clear. But uh, paragraphs 36, uh, 37... Uh, 44, 45, 46, all of those discuss the responsibilities of the different defendants and then the authority that they have. It just
3: says everybody's got this duty. It doesn't say where it came from and who's got it. I mean, why? I mean, I just don't, you know, what you've got is a whole list of, of jail people and you say they have this duty. And I'm looking at it saying... How do you review that for plausibility? And I'm wasting
4: your time. I, I mean, no, no, I, I, I don't think so, Your Honor. It's your time after all. Uh, but Davis v. Hall uh, did. I mean, there's a clear, and this has been something that that has been uh, true since the, the 1960s when they cited this yeah, quote the, in the notice pleading era. Well, but, but the, the 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 instance in Davis v. Hall is is the requirement of folks in these types of positions to ensure that they actually have somebody in well, jail who's yeah, supposed to be well, there. That's
0: that's. Where, that's.
4: That you can get in a horn book. Well, I, my my the reason for saying that, Your Honor, is I do believe that the the facts alleged here certainly, and I mean a lot of courts looked at this and it's no you can read all the orders. They said that the facts were light in these situations, but given the inferences that have to be made in favor of the plaintiff at this stage of the pleadings, we're not on summary judgment right now. We
0: don't have so. to make any inferences, and in we don't have to. You, Use inferences to
4: create plausibility that wasn't alleged. But I, I, sh- yes, Your Honor, I agree with that statement. However, in this situation, given the positions that were alleged of these folks, the requirements in other cases over long-standing case law statement, this is their responsibility to ensure that folks are not being detained illegally within their custody. And then looking at the responsibilities that were alleged, I agree. You could have written a whole lot more here, but I do think no, that this is the basic about putting, requirement.
0: Putting. Public employees at litigation at litigation risk at at public expense when they aren't given a fair notice of, of what the problem is and why why am I why am I the
4: defendant? Well, Your Honor, I. I as I said, and I, I suppose we disagree on this point, but uh, within the petition itself, there is sufficient notice to let the folks who are running the jail and the corrections division, because those are the last folks who are left, know that they are just. Th- there has to be policies in you, place you, which sure your
0: pleadingly requires the defense counsel to search out information that was more accessible to the plaintiff's lawyer in drafting the, before drafting the complaint, plus other things, of course.
4: Well, Your Honor, I, so I think at this point, this is something. I, I'm sorry, I forgot to mention earlier, but I, I, I had meant to discuss it. So, so, this is this is a situation where the plaintiff did not have as much access as defendant to this I, information. I just
0: told you the access the plaintiff had.
4: But the plaintiff didn't even know this had happened to him for years until after no, it occurred.
0: I'm a plaintiff's lawyer before the complaint is filed. Sure. Sure. Your client has said, "I didn't know about this for eight months." Well, if the public defender was was even even had been relieved of of, of responsibility, public defender had probably an obligation, if not to, to a former client, as an officer of the court, to tell to tell find out. Okay, he's I I understand he's go, he went back to the prison. You know why? What happened?
4: Well, in and in a lot the,
0: the public defender, if the public defender had done that. This wouldn't happen,
4: potentially, Your Honor. I, I mean, more in the, than potentially. Well, well, in in the it's it's hard because we haven't gotten to the discovery phase of this case yet. But but in a lot of the public defend the no, public but, defenders. If,
0: if you if, if you I'm personalizing. Oh, sh- that's fine. If, Your the, Honor. if the person who drafted the complaint had found out what could be found out from an interview of the public defender and alleged that. I just in on information and belief, what followed from what you learned in the public defender, you would have you, you would have first of all Iqbal compliance and second, compliance with the purpose of Iqbal.
4: Well, your honor um, and potentially more facts could be it just at, there, there's a large imbalance between who has knowledge in this case, so for the public defender, for example, there was a reason that this individual was left there. For eight months without being released, without the public defender having intervened either. And, and a lot of that is because the authority of the public defender's office evaporates once the criminal case is dismissed. And so there's not... Well, there's you, not say on,
0: you say that.
4: Right. And, I mean, if, so so now, that's, I'll,
0: I'll guarantee that, uh, that, that 90% or more of the public defenders would say, yeah, well, well, technically my job was over, but my obligation to my former client and, and to the proper administration of justice is that I do something about this. So,
2: counsel, the district court agreed with you that Glass and Carson plausibly pled their claims. Is there anything in the district court's order explaining why they came to that conclusion that you could uh, share with us that might be helpful to the court? Um,
4: Yeah, I, I do believe that the, uh, the order cited the same provisions of the, uh, the, the petition that um, I just did, um, but I can see... Uh, I mean, in, in the order itself, um, they did look, it was pre iqbal this is true, they did look at the, the Davis v. Harris case. Um, they did uh, look at the facts having been pled, and they found that because of the stage that we're at, I think a lot of it did, a lot of it is dependent on the stage of the procedure that we're in right now, because this is a motion to dismiss versus a summary judgment. Uh, so because of that, um, the court looked. And it's not just that court. I mean, several other courts have looked at uh, very similar complaints in these situations. And you know, after some of these have gone to discovery, and this one has. What, what was the number? What,
0: what it was a twelve B what motion?
4: It, uh, the motion to dismiss. Yeah. Twelve B six. Yes, Your Honor.
3: If we look at the complaint, there's a number of references to knew or should have known, and that's ordinarily a negligence standard, right? It's not the same, I think, technically as pleading on information and belief, Mm You know now it may it, maybe it 's good enough but but i 'd like you just to address that because obviously mere negligence doesn 't get you there
4: yeah and, and your honor i, I don 't think it's it's so the complaint itself doesn 't hinge just on the new or should have known that builds up with the rest of the allegations within the complaint as well. What that does show is that the defendants should have known or did know, and in some situations, depending on what discovery shows, uh, that folks were being Illegally detained there, and specifically, Michael Jones is being illegally detained in the jail. And then, so that's that's really those aren't the only things that the claims are hinging on those those statements themselves. Thank you. Uh, I see that my time has run out. So, for all of those reasons, we do ask that this court uh, uphold the trial court's uh, order and uh, send this case back for discovery. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you. Furbo.
1: Thank you, judges. Um just very briefly, unless any of you have any questions. Um, I did just want to point out that this case is is unique in that uh, opposing counsel did reference other cases that they have uh, filed that are similar to this. And in those cases, there's been discovery done. Um, And so there really is no excuse in this case, whereas in other cases, they may not have had or been entitled or had access to the information that the defendant had. In this case, they've had many, much access um, to what the defendants do, what their job duties are, um, etc And so I would just ask that the court take that into consideration when ruling on this case and we ask that the district court's order be reversed. Thank you. Thank you,
0: counsel. The case has been uh, well-briefed and argued, and we'll take it under advisement.